0: And Merry Christmas indeed. And that was some sweet harmonies there. If we're going to sing about glory to God in the highest. You might as well do it in multiple harmonic parts, I think. What a, what a treat it is to be gathered together to worship today on Christmas. And enjoy this opportunity because the next time that we gather as a church on Christmas Day will be in 2033. That's 11 years away from now, and it makes me wonder what it will be like 11 years from now when we gather again as a church. I'll be older. In fact, it's possible that in 11 years' time, my wife and I will actually be empty nesters and grandparents. (laughs) That was a weird thought as I was thinking about that. And I also wonder what it will be like even just in our culture. What's the Christmas spirit going to look like in our country 11 years from now? Will we even call it Christmas? I saw an interesting article this week in The Guardian, the most uh, widely read newspaper website in the UK, and it was titled this, Christmas comes with good cheer. The tragedy is the religious baggage. The article, I got a picture of the the headline there for you. The article was written by Polly Toynbee, and she may have wanted to update her profile picture for the article on good cheer. She doesn't (laughs) look really happy about it. She posted it this last Friday, and in the article, Polly refers to herself as a cultural Christian and a staunch atheist. She appreciates what she calls, quote, the ancient emotions more primitive than Christianity that the carols of the season stir in people. As she summarizes, in all Christmas messages, the poor inherit the earth, the stable stands for the homeless and refugees, yet the mystery, and I was tuned in now, right? Because what we've been talking about our whole Advent series is the mystery in the manger. What is the mystery? The mystery is why so little of this goodwill gets beyond the tinsel into politics. And that puts her view in a nutshell. Christmas is a valuable contribution to society when it motivates us to be the best political version of ourselves. She lauds what she sees as themes of human redemption and anti-capitalism in the movies and plays of the seasons. And even the original Christmas story has some use. She writes, quote, Every culture needs a midwinter festival of light in the darkness, a rebirth in the shortest days. Much as I dislike most Christian belief, The iconography of stars, stable, manger, kings, and shepherds to greet a new baby is a universal emblem of humanity. And then she laments how actually believing in the Christmas story ruins everything about Christmas. Generic goodwill has a place in this world, but being a part of Christ's church makes you a member of a backward group of people who believe in a manipulative and cruel God and who inflict constant oppression on the world, including particularly educating our children in private schools and opposing assisted suicide, which then leads her to her conclusion. So Christmas comes with good cheer. Enjoy it, but know that it comes with religious baggage we should shed. So let's start with where we agree. Christmas does have something to offer the whole world. And yes, it is a shame that the heart of Christmas is not currently impacting politics more. But now let's mount a defense of all that religious baggage attached to Christmas. As we are here to celebrate today, that baggage is actually what makes Christmas more than a local cultural custom and something truly worthy of global celebration. What Christmas declares to the world is good news and the world is in need of good news. As we look at our first point this morning, I want us to consider today a character we don't often see in our nativity sets And it's a little bit fair because he doesn't show up at the manger, but he does show up long before the Magi get there, so it seems like he should have been there before the wise men. His name is Simeon, and we don't know a lot about him other than what Luke describes in the second chapter of his Gospel. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, we read, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon was a true believer. He had lived a righteous life. He was devout in his worship of God. But Simeon was also restless and on a lookout What was he looking for? Good news. Good news. He was a part of a people, the Israelites, who were sorely in need of some consolation. And God had promised him that he would see that good news before he saw death. As Simeon goes in and out among God's people in Jerusalem there, he carries with him the story of Israel the story of much heartache and disappointment from within and from without, going all the way back to God's first work through Abraham when he called Abraham out from the the land of the Chaldees from the city of Ur and told him to wander until he would come to a land that God would show him. But Abraham proved to be an imperfect patriarch. He tried to find a shortcut to God's promise to a son and slept with his wife's servant, Hagar, And the result is that Abraham became the father of not one but two civilizations who are locked in conflict to this day. Fast forward a couple generations and you have Jacob, great Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, whose sons would become the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jacob was a deceiver and his family was filled with scandal and drama and he also was prone to that same drama leading to yet another nation arising from his estranged brother, the Edomites, who would be in conflict with the Israelites down through history? Trouble not only plagued Israel from internal conflict, but they also suffered at the hands of others. The descendants of Jacob were soon under the thumb of Egyptian slavery, which endured for over 400 years until God raised up a deliverer, Moses. And it seemed like finally now they may have somebody who could bring lasting peace. But even Moses was not going to be the consolation of Israel. God used him to bring the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness where God made a covenant with them. And he would lead them around in that wilderness for 40 years until they came to the very edge of the promised land. But Moses would never enter that land. His own failures would lead to his disqualification. He would die in the desert. Through many miracles and wonders, God brought his people into the promised land and gave it to them. But the commands of the Lord were followed imperfectly and remnants of the nations were left behind who worshipped horrifically cruel false gods. And those nations, such as the Philistines, would alternately influence and deceive or oppress and conquer Israel. On top of this, Israel repeatedly failed to follow the commands of God and found themselves in a revolving door of disobedience, judgment, repentance, deliverance, and more disobedience. Hope stirred again when a great king, David, sat upon the throne. He was a warrior, a musician, and a man of God. But he was also an adulterer and a murderer. God made a promise that through the line of David would come the one who would finally save Israel. But it would not be David. It also wouldn't be his son Solomon. Though Solomon was the wisest man who had ever lived, who had built the temple of God, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world, who had ruled over Israel's golden era, he was not the one to bring lasting consolation to beleaguered Israel. He became intoxicated with his power and riches and with women and in his old age was building altars to the false gods of his foreign wives. Solomon's son was a fool and split the nation in half. Ten tribes in the north keeping the name Israel and two tribes in the south calling themselves Judah. The north would fall into complete apostasy and be carried off and scattered among the lands of the earth by the Assyrians. The south never found its footing again either and remained a ghost of its former glory until it too was taken off into captivity, this time by the Babylonians. Most tragic of all was the total destruction of the great temple of God, a gut-wrenching symbol of just how broken the people of the former nation Israel had become. Though the people of Judah would eventually return to the land under leaders like Nehemiah and Ezra, it would not be as a free people. Babylonian oppression only gave way to Persian oppression, which only gave way to Greek oppression, which only gave way to Roman oppression. Can you feel the weight of all of that? As Simeon comes into the temple every day seeking to fulfill the commands of God and devote himself to worship and yet wondering when God will finally bring about the consolation of his hurting people. And even as he stands there, not in Solomon's temple, but in the temple rebuilt by Herod, he can see the massive stone glare of the Roman Fort Antonia built right up against the temple and always keeping an eye on all of its occupants. I say all of that as background because it is absolutely stunning to me to see then what Simeon does and says next. But before we get to that, let's catch up to where we're at in the story. After 400 years of silence from heaven in which no prophet had prophesied, no scripture had been written since Malachi's pen was laid down, you can imagine the shock when a young woman named Mary was suddenly having an audience with the angel Gabriel. God has legions of angels at his disposal, but there are two in particular that get tasked for special assignments. One is Michael. Michael is the angel you hope God never sends to your front door. He is the angel who heads up God's armies when it's time to take care of business. Next to God himself, Michael is next on the list of beings you always hope are on your side. The other angel is Gabriel, and Gabriel is the special messenger angel of God. He delivers key revelation at major turning points in God's plans. And in Luke 2.26, Gabriel shows up in this tiny home, in a tiny hilltop city, in the northern Galilee of Israel called Nazareth, and gives Mary this message. You know it well, Luke 1.28 and following... And coming in, he said to her, Greetings. <laughs> just like that. Coming in. He just walks on in. Hi. <laughs> Greetings. Favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. And can we just all pause and note, like, that is stunning courage to hear Gabriel walk in and greet you and simply be perplexed. I would have been paralyzed. She was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. This is big news. A child is coming. But a child unlike any other. This will not be a child by natural generation. But a child of divine origin. And his name will be Jesus. And notice. He will be great. According to one list I found, there have been at least 114 monarchs who have been referred to as so and so the great. The earliest are from thousands of years before Christ, and the most recent one died in 2016. Most of the greats were leaders of empires that don't even exist anymore. And as I just mentioned, they're all dead. Notice that Jesus is not going to be called the great. He will be great. What he will be called is the son of the most high, a title of divinity. What he will accomplish is the reclaiming of David's throne and the beginning of an eternal kingdom which will have no end. Mary's incredible faith is summed up in her simple acceptance of this message and her outburst of praise when she visited her aunt Elizabeth a short while later. And if you want to look at that more closely, I invite you to go back and listen to Caleb's message from a few weeks ago. For now, we fast forward roughly nine months to the events of Luke chapter 2. Mary is now with Joseph, who, after his own visit from an angel, is on board with God's plan. God now moves his pieces into place using, interestingly enough, a census called by Caesar Augustus. To be counted, everyone had to return to their city of origin. For Joseph, that meant going to the ancestral city of the house of David, Bethlehem, just south of Jerusalem. And it was while there that the time came for Mary to give birth, and she brought a son into the world in the mess and the embarrassment of a stable. No halos, no choirs, no silence, not much in the way of privacy, definitely no drummer boy going parumpa pum pum. <laughs> Thank goodness. And while this is taking place, out in the fields, lying close by, a group of shepherds was given the fright of their lives that we read about in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. In the same region there about, Jerusalem, or about Bethlehem, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. And if you want to write in your Bible next to host army, that's what it means of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. These frightened shepherds were to be the first human witnesses apart from Mary and Joseph of the arrival of the long awaited Messiah. Good news, great joy. Indeed, the gospel wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in an animal feed manger What a sight it must have been to see the Lord's angel suddenly flanked by the massive army of heaven, declaring glory to God and peace between God and man. Eight days later, Joseph, Mary, and the newborn Jesus made the five-mile journey north from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to present Jesus to the temple according to Jewish law and custom. And that's where we pick up again with Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, verse 27, And he, Simeon, in the spirit, came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence. Listen to this, of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. What a powerful declaration from this aging man. What an amazing moment as he took this baby in his arms Was Mary nervous as as this elderly stranger takes her baby only a few days old and, and holds him close? Simeon cannot contain his joy and he blesses God. He has been waiting for divine consolation and now he is holding that consolation in his arms. He can feel the heartbeat of that consolation. And notice, Simeon doesn't say, that he has seen the one who will accomplish God's salvation, the one who will reveal salvation, the one who will all inspire us to be the best version of our secular selves, which we can pretend is some kind of salvation. No, having gazed upon Jesus, he can firmly say that he has now seen God's salvation. Jesus is God's salvation, not the inspiration of it. The good news, the gospel isn't just about Jesus, it is Jesus. And it is good news, notice, for the whole world. In an age when so many missed the point of the Messiah, the Holy Spirit granted amazing understanding of something truly remarkable here to Simeon. Had you told most Jews gathered in the temple under that watchful eye of Rome from that leering fort that the consolation of Israel had shown up at last, their words of praise would have probably been something like, finally, down with the Romans, down with all those Gentiles, let the glory days of Israel begin. But notice Simeon says, this salvation is prepared not just for the eyes of Israel, but in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, as well as the glory of Israel. (laughs) This little baby here, Simeon is saying, is going to bring salvation to those oppressive Romans just over there. And not only to them, but to every nation. In these words, Simeon is digging back into the Old Testament and reminding everyone that God's promise of a Messiah was not just to be the solution to Israel's oppression from foreign nations, but to solve a much older and more serious problem. A problem going all the way back to the fountainhead of humanity itself and the sin which entered into the world through Adam. It was there in Eden that God first promised he would send a savior so that Satan could be crushed and there could be a path to peace with God again. Israel was never meant to be the isolated recipient of God's favor but they were to be the lenses around the lighthouse of God's revelation, beaming good news to the whole world. That's why Isaiah 9 not only tells us that the Messiah will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace, but that He will bring comfort to the Gentiles. That's why in Isaiah 40, we see the promises of kindness and forgiveness of sins to erring Israel, but also promises that God's glory will thus be revealed to all flesh on earth. That's why in Isaiah 42, we see the Messiah presented as the one who does not break a bruised reed or extinguish a dimly burning wick or crush the disheartened. And it is this Messiah who will rule in justice and make his people a light to the nations. And that's why in Isaiah 49, driving this point home, declares that God will not rest until his salvation reaches the very ends of the earth. Christmas is a celebration, not of the human spirit triumphing over inferior politics, but of God triumphing over sin. For the reason we are all sinners, the whole world needs good news. And for the reason God has sent his son secondly this morning, the whole world needs Jesus. That is the message and the heart of Christmas. The whole world needs Jesus. So let's pile on the religious baggage today, shall we? The world needs Jesus, born of a virgin and without the inherited sin nature that ruins the rest of us. The world needs Jesus, the righteous one who never once failed to perfectly fulfill the law of God and therefore was free from the law's condemnation, unlike us. The world needs Jesus, the sacrifice for sin, who gave his body and his blood for people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. The world needs Jesus, the risen one, who has conquered death and now sits at the right hand of the Father. The world needs Jesus, the intercessor, who pleads on the behalf of all who come to him in faith, ensuring that just as the angel said, there can be peace, and goodwill towards those with whom God is pleased. The world needs Jesus, the coming king, who will get all up in the world's politics and bring every broken, crooked, and ungodly nation, and if you're curious, that would be all of them, under his actually just and actually righteous dominion. That is the joy of Christmas. He is the one the world needs, and he came. One drop of Christmas joy in Christ is more potent than an ocean of secular good cheer without him. God in the flesh is certainly worth throwing a party for once a year. Amen? And that flesh being laid down for us is also worth our ongoing remembrance. And I would invite you to take your communion elements this morning and you can begin to prepare those. Our Advent series has been called The Mystery in the Manger. And I want to present one last mystery. And that is this. The mystery didn't stay in the manger. In the first chapter of Paul's letter to the saints in Colossae, he celebrates Jesus. He celebrates his divine nature, his role as being first in all creation and indeed all things. He describes the death of Jesus and how that reconciles sinners to God by faith and begins the journey of transforming us into a holy and blameless people. In light of this Paul even says he's found a reason for joy in his sufferings on behalf of the church. And that's why he writes of his ministry in Colossians 1:25 and following, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the who? Among the Gentiles. What is this mystery? Not just that he came in the manger, but Christ in Christ you the hope of glory the mystery in the manger became the christ on a cross who is now the savior in his saints this isn't the hope of humanity this is the hope of glory and that is hopeful for humanity and I would call you this morning, if, if you are here and you do not yet know why Christmas is a, is a celebration for the world, then I call you to come to Christ, to believe that this is not simply a mythological story of goodwill but this is a celebration of the historical occurrence of God becoming man so that He might become the substitutionary sacrifice not for our political squabbles alone, but for our sin. And that having solved the problem of sin, we, by asking for forgiveness from God through Christ's sacrifice can have peace with him and therefore be on the family team of God. And when all things are reconciled in Christ and he returns and he will to reign as king as he should and subject all nations to himself as is inevitable and make all things new, then we shall be with him. If you have not yet done that, what a better way to spend Christmas than to come to know the mystery in the manger until he becomes the mystery in you, the hope of glory. The bread and the cup symbolizes that death that was the purpose of that birth for each of us. And I would invite you as I pray, whether you have known Christ long or whether even now you are putting your faith in him to consider the totality of the good news of Christmas. It encompasses not just the baby in the manger, but all that the coming of Christ means. And then let that be the heartbeat of our Christmas day. Do not let our presents be a distraction. Do not let our families be a distraction. Do not let our merrymaking be a distraction, but let them all be an expression of the gratitude we have for the mystery in the manger. Would you pray with me? Father, what profound gratitude fills us that you would ordain the consolation of Israel to be the consolation of all peoples. And I know for many, both in this room and in our city and across this land and indeed around the world, today is a day marked with heartache, with the recognition that behind all of the bright colors and the tinsel is a world still languishing under the ongoing effects of the curse. But Father, help us today to celebrate Christmas as a proclamation, indeed the same proclamation as our taking of communion that Christ died for sins. And therefore that curse has been defeated and hope is real. And that in him we can even today have joy in the middle of a broken world. And we can have the confidence that all things will be made right. Please, Lord, allow us to be, as your people, a compelling testimony to the world of what Christmas is all about. And to not let this day become a ghost of human goodwill, but to stay based around the reality of Christ in the flesh. And to that end, Lord, we pray now you would take even this offering of our communion as a sign of our solidarity in him, even as he is in us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take together. Thanks be to God for his indescribably mysterious gift. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And if you said amen, then sing, all you citizens of heaven above. And today and every day, come and let us adore him. Would you stand?